Hi, and welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I am Eva, a civil engineering professor and blogger on the side. And I'm Rico, a PhD student in civil engineering. Join us on this podcast in which we discuss all topics related to PhD life, research mechanics, and lived experiences. There'll be interviews and discussions with guest researchers and PhD students. We hope you stick around with us here on the PhD Talk podcast. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of the PhD Talk podcast. Our topics for today is going to be the PhD timeline. Rico, can you tell us a little bit more about your PhD timeline? Which kind of tasks have you worked on so far? Sure, yeah. So um, I'm uh, completing uh, an engineering PhD in Canada uh, at McGill University. Here, generally, you choose your supervisor uh, before you begin your study. So you speak with a supervisor, you know, they agree to supervise you, and then you apply to the university. Uh, so when I applied, I had spoken to my master's supervisor, and he was very supportive, and he encouraged me to apply. Typically, you, you go into, a, especially an engineering PhD, and uh, you're expected to take about four years to complete it. And in general, the outline is as follows. Uh, you start uh, with a general research topic to sort of guide your initial, your initial research. You perform a literature review on that topic, and then you go, you write a research proposal, complete a comprehensive exam, and then you start work on your experimental work in the, in the laboratory, typically. From there, you do your data analysis and you write. Hopefully you get a, a couple of publications from it and your, uh, your thesis. Is there any additional requirements like coursework or serving as a teaching assistant or any kind of those requirements? So um, there is a coursework requirement. It's pretty small. You're only required to take um, two graduate level uh, engineering courses. But if your comprehensive exam uh, goes, I wouldn't say if it goes poorly, but if they, if your committee notices that you have some topics that um, you need to brush up on, they could recommend further courses uh, at that point. And that comprehensive exam is like an oral exam with your committee? Well, yeah. So the, the comprehensive exam is um, you, you present your research proposal first and foremost, and then the committee helps guide you in terms of uh, what you should be focusing on and uh, what results you should be looking for. And then you take a break, <laughs> you take a break, you go grab a, a coffee and then you come back. And the task of the committee at that point is to grill you on general structural engineering topics and to make sure that you have a sufficient background to sort of face any of the challenges that you could encounter. And so at that point, that's where uh, if you're not familiar with some key topic, then uh, the committee will sort of try and help you to increase your knowledge in that particular topic. And that timeline-wise, then that comprehensive exam is at the end of the first year? Yeah, so you're supposed to um, complete it uh, at the end of your first year. This year, because of uh, COVID, everything was delayed. So I completed mine six months late, let's say. I completed mine in, in June. It was very helpful because you're required to write a detailed research proposal and defend your research proposal. And so that was helpful in terms of me getting my thoughts organized and um, figuring out where the, where the challenges lie. So can you tell us a bit about your timeline so far? How has everything come together or worked together or in a different order than the template? So, you know, that's the typical timeline, right? Of course, nothing goes to plan. So my research actually, before I had even written a formal research proposal, uh, we were in the lab, you know, building the formwork and, and casting our, our concrete specimens. So I sort of did things out of order. 
And I think the, the reason for that was partly um, because we rely um, a lot on undergraduates to help in the lab, uh, because these are you know, big projects that require a lot of, I guess, manpower to, uh, to work on. And so we have undergraduate students that only come in in the summer. So if you miss a summer semester of working in the lab, you know, then other priorities take over, right? You, you have your teaching assistantships that uh, then come into play in the fall and winter. You know, you really want to get your research done in that summer. And so because I came in in January, uh, we were able to start the experimental work in May. And then I only completed my research proposal the following June. I think it's not that uncommon to have a not that linear PhD timeline. If I, if I look back at my own PhD, the project on which I worked had started in January, but I, because I was still finishing up my master's and doing my master's in the United States, I started in September. And by that time, because of the deliverables of the project, my uh, daily supervisor had actually already designed the specimens and the formwork was in the lab and ready to cast the concrete when when I started so essentially I arrived and the first day the technician came to me with some questions on the design of the test setup and I, I remember that at the time I was like feeling completely out of place because I had to design steel members for my test setup and I was like oh oh oh, oh. And, and then I think the next day they came with a pair of boots saying well we're going to cast concrete so here are your boots so get ready and I didn't know much about the topic or anything so for me the literature review happened after I had already done some experiments and as I mentioned in the first episode I tested for about two and a half years pretty much continuously in the lab with uh, a few pauses along the way but most of my time in the first two and a half years the focus was on the experiments and already analyzing some data and writing some preliminary reports for the funding body to already show the first results so a lot of it came at the same time for me as well and um Does Delft also uh, sort of employ undergraduate research assistants or is it mostly graduate students or... When it comes to the, the experiments that are researched, it's mostly PhD students. Um, some research projects are fully done by, by the staff, so the postdocs, the assistant professors, associate professors. And um, some smaller experiments can be done by master students. When we have something big to test that needs a lot of extra hands, we do typically get the help of master students. In terms of undergraduate students, it only in some of the cases where we did uh, low test um, bridges in the field where we really needed a lot of hands, there we had uh, help from undergraduate students. But other than that, we don't rely that much on undergraduates. Uh, we do have very good support in the laboratory itself. So we have technicians who have many years of experience doing experiments who are really crucial to the design of our test setups and making sure everything runs smoothly in the lab i think our lab is probably uh, i mean i haven't seen the lab at delft but i think the one at mcgill is um, a little bit smaller than some typical uh, structural engineering labs and it's also located in a, a historic building built in 1914 and it's been a research lab for that entire time so it's very much a, a hodgepodge of uh, testing equipment and past test setups that are sort of piled around the, the lab And some of our professors, the structural engineering professors, they work in collaboration with one of the bigger labs uh, in Montreal, which is at Université de Montréal, University of Montreal. They conduct the research there. So I described my um, PhD timeline and how it differs from the typical one. Is this sort of similar to what happens in the Netherlands or how is it different? 
in broad terms of ideally you do the literature review and then you refine the research question and then you design experiments, you execute experiments, you analyze data and then you write everything up. That is the same. Um, a few things that are different in the Netherlands, the overall time, four years is the time that PhD students get when they are full time. A lot of them are part time, so they get an adjusted longer amount of time. Extensions are common. The four years, that's the goal, but extensions are rather common. In terms of the additional milestones that one has in the Netherlands, originally when I did my PhD, we did not have any requirements for coursework and we did do a fair amount of, or maximum 20% of our time would be dedicated to teaching, supervising master students, as well as teaching some lectures as a guest lecturer, and then a lot of supervising the students um, that were doing for example, case studies in, in a certain course and grading those things. Right now, that has shifted a little bit towards uh, requirements of doctoral education for, I'm not sure if it's for all universities in the Netherlands, but at least at TU Delft, there's now a number of credits that students have to fulfill to get their PhD. And those credits are subdivided into courses that are uh, what they call discipline related. So you have to either take a master level course on a topic that you didn't take or go attend the summer school, things like that. Then there are the transferable skills and there's a number of courses on presenting your research writing a thesis, writing a paper that students have to take. And then students also have to, PhD students also have to get a number of credits related to learning on the job. Uh, so they get credits when they participate in the conference, they get credits when they write a paper, things like that. So that it didn't exist in the past, now exists. And after the first year, we have the go, no go meeting. It used to be just like a, an annual review meeting at any job. By now, that has morphed into a, a bit more like what you described from defending the proposal. They have to write a report, really showing the literature review that they did. They have to defend the methods that they will use. They have to show their planning for the next three years. And there is a committee involved with it. That committee of the of the go no go is not going to be the same as your defense committee. We have a different committee at the end. And I think one thing, perhaps as an addition, is that in the Netherlands, a PhD student is considered an employee of university. So that makes a, the cut between a master student and a PhD student is larger because once you become a PhD student, you go from being a paying student to receiving a salary and being considered an employee, having to pay your taxes and retirement funds and all of that. So I guess you would be eligible for um, the healthcare and uh, sort of the pension plan. I'm not sure what that's looking like in the Netherlands, but something like that, right? Exactly. So you also start to build up social security then. See, in, in Canada, we're, um, we're not considered employees. And so I'm lucky enough to have funding from the university. This is sort of getting into the nitty gritty, maybe, but like I'm not taxed on that income. It's not considered employment income. So it's a little bit different. I don't have any of the, the health benefits and I'm explicitly not a employee of the university. I think that's an interesting way to go about it because realistically, it is a it is a, a, an employment. You are working for or towards research and you're working mainly at the university. So I, I think that sets 
the Netherlands, perhaps apart from most other countries, for example, if you want to get a house, it's more likely that you can get a loan from the bank because of the your employment status. And of course, depends a little bit on the current economy. And, and it's, of course, a, a short-term four-year contract, um, but you're more likely to be able to make those steps in life that perhaps in other systems are more difficult. Yeah, well, I have sort of firsthand experience with that because um, my fiance and I were looking to buy a condo and, uh, you know, talking to the bank, they wouldn't recognize the fact that I was a PhD student, even though I had a letter guaranteeing my funding or my stipend that wasn't considered when they were looking to give us a loan or a mortgage. So it's a, it's a challenge here. And I, I'm happy to hear that there are countries that treat it differently. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, it used to be in the Netherlands, PhD students is uh, a salaried employee, don't touch it. But you see a little bit more push towards reopening that discussion and saying, why are we doing things differently? Shouldn't we consider them as maybe keep the, the pocket money that they get every month the same, but start changing their status towards uh, as having a scholarship? My personal opinion is that we should try to keep it as salaried employees as much as possible for anything that is building up your social security, retirement, maternity leaves, paternity leaves, uh, all of that are benefits that are different from just what you get on your bank account every month. No, you're absolutely right. I had another question uh, regarding working as a, uh, as a teaching assistant. Where I am right now, if I work as a teaching assistant, that's a separate from my stipend or my, my scholarship and my funding from the university. So it's not contingent on, like my funding is not contingent on me working as a teaching assistant. Is that similar to, to your experience? No, in, in the Netherlands, as a PhD student, you can spend maximum 20% of your time on teaching and it's part of your job description. In practical terms, it really depends on when the course runs. In the Netherlands, they have a, a system of carders. So there's a four carders in the academic year. And if you are teaching assistant for the exercises or the project of a certain course, you, you will only have that teaching load during that, uh, that quarter. Okay. It's a little bit different from, from how it works here. Yeah. So we work in, um, basically, there's two semesters during which teaching takes place. And then there's the summer semester, which is generally reserved for research. And you mentioned earlier a winter as well? Yeah. So the, the semesters are grouped. Uh, we have the fall semester, which is September to December. And then what they consider the winter semester, January to April. Okay. <laughs> That's a long, a long Canadian winter. Yeah. Well, exactly. Right now, you know, it gets dark at 4.30 here, so it can be a little bit bleak uh, that winter semester. So, of course, we've been speaking about our uh, our experience in engineering PhDs. I know from uh, my friends that are uh, doctoral students in sciences and the humanities that their paths can take uh, a lot longer. I know it's typical six years and their paths, from what I've heard, are a lot more meandering. So they're not as clear cut, especially in their, their research component. I'm sure we're going to have some humanities and uh, sciences PhDs uh, students and researchers on the podcast going forward. So I'm excited to hear what their timelines look like. Mm -hmm. I think partially that may also be related to the type of funding. Many engineering PhD projects are funded by industry or government to solve a specific problem and to come up with rather specific deliverables. Whereas if you need to start from really looking at the literature and finding your topic, then I can imagine that takes a, a whole part of time in itself. Yeah, I think we have it lucky being in the field of engineering in, in that sense. 
Yeah, in addition, I, I think I could say something on a few other countries where the PhD timeline may be different from what we just discussed. There's a f- few countries where three years is really the goal for a PhD. What comes to my mind, and it's not, not an exhaustive list, um, United States, United Kingdom, France, and uh, Australia. Some things that are specific for the United States is that I think the amount of courses, course credits that they need to get as part of the requirement to graduate from the PhD is on the larger side as compared to other countries. And then what I've seen from looking at and talking to, to colleagues in other countries is that in Germany, PhD students get and and in Belgium as well, they take on a lot of teaching responsibilities. So anything that is the, and not just what I described that we do in Delft, uh, guiding some students for maximum 20% of our time. In Germany and Belgium, the PhD students typically teach all the the exercise sessions. So there, the typical system for the lectures is that the professor will teach just a theory, and then you have really assigned sessions in your schedule for what is the exercises and the labs and all of that is run by the PhD students. So with that said, what I've heard from my colleagues in Germany and Belgium is that easily a lot of their time goes into their teaching so their overall PhD can also take longer. We have a similar system where we have lecture hours. Typically, those are given by the professor of the course. And then we have tutorial and laboratory sessions. And those are usually run by not necessarily PhD students, but master students as well. In those courses, we uh, you you know we either have laboratory experiments or um, we have tutorial periods where we go over some typical examples and work through some problems. There isn't really a, a hard limit on the amount of time we can spend uh, giving those types of sessions. Obviously, your supervisor is going to be a little bit upset if you're working 40 hours a week as a teaching assistant and not progressing on your research. But And does it involve as well anything that would be writing out the course notes and developing the course material? Or is that usually something that you get passed on from a previous teaching assistant? So the, um, for example, I'm working this semester as a, as a teaching assistant for a structural engineering course, and I'm given the examples that the previous teaching assistant presented in class and that sort of thing. But uh, I'm tasked with coming up with my own examples to present. So in that way, I guess you sort of help develop the um, the course material, but. Yeah, I think in Delft, that was more limited. It was really defined by the lecturer, what we had to do in terms of really guiding with the case studies. So there was less the requirement to to develop our own material. Okay. And uh, what about marking? Is that generally um, a task given to PhD students? Um, When it comes to exercises, homework assignments, sometimes in the Netherlands, I remember we did the grading of these case studies, one of the concrete courses, but then grading the exams, no, that is really the professor who does that. Yeah, it's the the same thing uh, here. The professors want to uh, grade the uh, exam material because obviously that counts towards a large portion of the students' grades. The teaching assistants grade the assignments, which is what I'm facing now. I have uh, a pile of assignments to to grade. All right, this has been the second episode of the PhD Talk podcast in which we talked about PhD timelines as well as the responsibilities of PhD students in different universities and different countries. Hope you enjoyed it and we will be back next week with more on PhD Live and Research Mechanics.